All right. Uh, uh, so I am now joined by Matt McManus, uh, who is a absurdly prolific writer uh, for Jacobin and Ario and a bunch of other places. He has written uh, a bunch of books, uh, and a couple of them have to do with what he calls postmodern conservatism. And uh, we were talking today because it seemed like there might be a way of, uh, you know, doing a philosophy episode, which we haven't really done in a little bit, uh, and uh, also making it extremely topical because I know that Matt has just been reading uh, Alexander uh, Dugan, uh, who, um, Matt, you want to you tell anybody who's not familiar who that is? Sure. Well, Alexander Dugan is a philosopher and politician, I should say, uh, in Russia. Uh, he kind of rose to prominence in the 1990s because of his work on geopolitics, uh, which is usually considered seminal uh, within Russian military circles and Russian political circles. Uh, but the book that I'm familiar with uh, and that I was just going through is his work, The Fourth Political Theory. Uh, now, for, that might seem a little bit weird. We're talking about the fourth political theory. His argument is that the modern world has been characterized by the ascendancy and the clash of three different political theories, uh, liberalism, socialism slash communism, you know, you can choose whatever term you want, uh, and fascism. Uh, and his argument is that liberalism basically beat out the other two over the course of the 20th century. He's not particularly happy about it, so he's going to develop a fourth political theory, a new rival for the liberal international order and domestic liberalism, as it were. Right. So uh, I, I guess before kind of getting into uh, what he seems to mean by that and and what he he really stands for, um, it's it's worth maybe noting that like the political project here is extreme Russian nationalism. Absolutely. Uh, and there's no doubt that he, like Vladimir Putin, experienced the fall of the Soviet Union uh, as a catastrophe uh, in a certain sense um, as a Russian nationalist. Uh, now, you might see that as being a little bit odd since you know, communism uh, was a kind of universalistic doctrine, very much grounded in the Enlightenment, uh, and it had global aspirations uh, of the same sort as liberalism, and he doesn't deny that. Uh, nevertheless, he saw the Soviet Union uh, and communism as providing a kind of buffer uh, against the decadence and decay of liberal modernity, kind of an alternative that forced liberalism to correct for some of its most vulgar characteristics. Uh, now, without that and the kind of presence of a unipolar world where the United States and Western countries can, in principle at least, impose their will on whoever they want, uh, he thinks there's no longer those kind of barriers. And what he wants is for Russia to kind of regain what he sees as a historically appropriate role in the world as a superpower, uh, just now rather than adopting and advancing uh, kind of enlightenment doctrine like communism. He wants us to espouse a kind of hyper-nationalism, uh, a resurrected kind of orthodox theology, and a variety of other things to boot that we can get into. Yeah, so uh, I don't know that much about this guy. Uh, really, my only point of entry uh, besides, you know, I mean, I've, I've vaguely heard people talk about him over the uh, over the years. You know, I, I have a vibe. But uh, but otherwise, uh, really, uh, you know, the only thing that uh, that I know about him is that I watched uh, one event that he did, uh, which was a debate with uh, Bernard Henri Lévy um, about. Oh, yeah, the debate, right. 
yeah, liberalism basically. And, uh, you know, I, and it's, in some ways the whole thing's very alien versus predator for me. Cause you know, cause, cause I think, you know, <laughs> Henri Levy is like, you know, the most, uh, like vapid and, and awful kind of like neoliberal and, uh, and, and Dugan is Dugan. Uh, but, uh, what was really striking about, and you know, whatever, I mean, Dugan clearly won that debate, but, uh, what was really striking about it was a couple things. Uh, one of which is, you know, I, I think it was a good corrective for me because I, I will sometimes say things like, well, look, there's some like basic, like really super rudimentary baseline of enlightenment liberal values that pretty much everybody in the modern world accepts that, uh, you know, that like all of the sort of most bitter life and death conflicts that we have are, are in a certain sense, you know, about the details, right. That, uh, um, you know, do you, you know, does acknowledging that, you know, that we all, all humans have a certain package of basic rights, et cetera, you know, should that lead you to, you know, supporting, you know, capitalism or socialism or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. These are, you know, extremely serious things, you know, people will, will kill each other over all of this, but, uh, but that there is this sort of baseline that's in common and, you know, in making this point, sometimes I'll overstate the case and say things like, uh, you know, pretty much unless you're a neo-Nazi, you know, meeting in a basement somewhere or like, a, you know, a warlord leading a band of, you know, child soldiers through some conflict zone, you know, pretty much everybody accepts this. And I have to say, like, Dugan is the person I've seen who is the most, um, you know, like, I, there are sort of, uh, you know, whatever they'll call themselves, sort of like post-liberal right-wing intellectuals in Western countries who will sort of waggle their eyebrows suggestively at some of the stuff. But Dugan is the person who I have seen who's just the most frank about rejecting all of that. Like he, uh, you know, at, at one point in that debate, he says that individuals no more have rights against their nation than uh, the parts of your body have against you. Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. Uh, and it's worth noting that the arguments he makes for this position are quite distinctive uh, because unlike a lot of other conservatives, particularly post-liberals who you mentioned in the United States, uh, he's very happy to embrace a kind of relativism and skepticism in order to endorse this viewpoint. Uh, you know, he would say things uh, consistently like Russia has its own unique approach to human rights, uh, which, you know, most of us would interpret me as meaning it doesn't respect them at all. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's no way that the West can criticize this position consistently uh, since this is just the one that they've chosen to adopt as a result of their history, their culture, uh, their religious principles. Uh, and he is quite quick to characterize any attempt to assert the universality uh, of liberal rights, or for that matter, socialist conceptions of rights, as a kind of imperialism uh, that's contravening the Russian outlook uh, and its kind of spiritual mission in the world. Yeah, and that's the other thing that seemed the most kind of interesting and, and striking to me is uh is the uh, is the relativism that um that it's like yeah, you could have your western values that's fine right you know we, we we've got our you know we've got our russian values which uh i mean i guess it's i mean there's certainly at least a family resemblance to some of the stuff that like amartya sen is is criticizing you know people who, mm -hmm. who, who want to talk about asian values and you know things like that um but it is like a a at the very least, it's like a really strikingly like bald faced uh, version of it, you know, that, uh, you know, that there's no attempt at saying even really, as far as I can tell, 
oh, in Russia, we've figured out, you know, these like basic universal truths about morality that, you know, that you, you people have it, right? It's just like, no, whatever, you know, this is our thing. Well, I think like any other kind of relativism, uh, especially a kind of relativistic ultranationalism, he does sometimes seem to assert this. Uh, I mean, elsewhere in the fourth political theory, he characterizes liberalism as evil uh, and an evil that needs to be confronted. Uh, and then he kind of backs off and, that's, uh, and says, well, this is just from my perception uh, or from my point of view. Uh, and then he goes back on and says that, you know, it has these kind of satanic inclinations. So I don't exactly want to accuse him of an excess of consistency on this point, right? Uh, Dugan is nothing if not almost gleefully uh, inconsistent from an argumentative standpoint. But I think, yeah, the basic idea, if you were to try to hammer his work uh, into something resembling a cogent argument, would be that there are these kind of collective entities, uh, whether they're nations or civilizations, is something that the book debates. Uh, they're the ones that get to establish what constitutes the right moral uh, and spiritual outlook for their citizenry. Uh, and if the West wants to adopt its uh, own kind of conception of what the relationship between the individual and the collective, whether it's the nation or the civilization should be, uh, and it wants to take a very individualistic rights-oriented approach, Dugan would sometimes say that that's fine. Right? That's just the way you do things. Uh, but it's not appropriate to a Russian context uh, uh, or a Eurasian context, uh, which is something else that he talks about, which we can discuss if you want. Yeah, so... Right. And, and I mean, I guess the... I mean, I guess the other thing to to emphasize, I mean, this this maybe gets into... Um, you know what he means you know by by saying that he's got a fourth position but is that there did seem to be moments in that event that I watched where it seemed like you know his i mean his response to being called a fascist is kind of funny you know which is like literally that you know he's like outflanking it from the right you know by saying it's like no what what are you talking about fascism i mean a fascism is a product of the modern world i reject all of that yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, there's no doubt that there's a huge fascist influence on his work. Uh, he makes his death to people like Julius Savola extremely clear. Uh, and also, you know, there's all kinds of German right-wing thinkers uh, that are pretty foundational to his argument, uh, even if he's critical of them at some points. People like Oswald Spengler, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think where he differs uh, from classical fascism, uh, and I do want to say that I do think Dugan is a neo-fascist, uh, kind of a, maybe a postmodern fascist, who knows. Um, but where he differs from classical fascism is that Classical fascism uh, did tend to make universalistic and scientific statements. Uh, think about the Nazi case, right, where it had this big picture vision of history where it said that there's a confrontation between the Aryan race or the white race uh, and all of its inferior competitors, uh, particularly Jews, right? Uh, Dugan wouldn't buy into something that's as biologically reductive or scientific uh, as that, even if he is attracted to the elements of fascism that stress, you know, subordination to these collective entities, particularly the nation, uh, a kind of a ranchist approach to modernity, militarism, obviously, right? Uh, So it's a fourth political theory, um, but I want to point out that if he does draw inspiration from the other three uh, theories that are emblematic of modernity, uh, he entirely rejects almost everything about liberalism. Uh, He takes a healthy dose of fascism and puts that into his fourth political theory. Uh, and all that he really takes from the left, and I think this is really important to stress, uh, are those elements of left-wing doctrine that are entirely incompatible uh, with liberalism. So I don't even really see it so much as a fourth political theory as a kind of neo-fascism uh, with a couple of rhetorical and theoretical flourishes uh, and a kind of bizarre uh, insistence on relativism. 
Yeah, and, and in some ways, I think maybe it's a, a disturbing mirror for, uh, should be at least for some leftists to, to look into since uh, both, uh, you know, both in terms of the, uh, the relativism and also, like, this is something that, I mean, I think knowing you has probably helped me, you know, get clearer on this, but I mean, it's a feeling that I've had for a very long time. Like I remember, uh, like, I don't know, seven, you know, six years ago, maybe, you know, hanging out with, uh, some, um, you know, graduate students at, at Rutgers once I'd, uh, started to, um, you know, started to teach as an adjunct there, and and it was kind of a weird experience in a couple of ways because like you know back when I was in grad school like there were three people you know like including me you know who who were uh, who were interested in Marxism or socialism or anything like that right I mean it was it was a different time uh, and <laughs> so uh, yeah right you know and, and things you know have a certain sense started to change for the better but like also it was weird that like people I talked to people. In 2016, they'd be trying to, you know, and, and they would have these like sort of radical leftist instincts and where they would take it would be sort of like criticizing um, liberalism, not just in the obvious sense of liberalism as a contemporary political position that's, you know, to the left of conservatism and uh, to uh, to the right of social democracy, uh, but you know, but like philosophical liberalism, like, you know, John Rawls and stuff like that. And I always just had this, this instinct that that was just a weird category mistake, you know, that like, uh, it's like, no, that's, that's not a kind of liberalism that's incompatible with anything that you want. In fact, it's a kind of liberalism that, you know, in that broad philosophical sense, you know, is, is actually, you know, probably without it, you know, everything that you want is sort of incomprehensible. Um, but there is certainly a, a kind of of radical leftist theorist who will make all of these broad sweeping statements about uh, about liberalism being bad, where by liberalism they really do mean, you know, in a certain sense, the kind of liberalism that somebody like Dugan objects to. No, absolutely. Uh, no, I think the idea that you sometimes hear people talk about, uh, which is that the political spectrum is better understood as a circle, right? So if you go so far left, you end up on the right. Uh, that's ridiculous. But in some circumstances, it is the case that people who are attracted to the left or the right precisely for the most illiberal features uh, of conservative or leftist critiques of modernity can sometimes circle around to the other side. Uh, and Dugan's biography uh, is kind of an exemplar of that, uh, where he was variably attracted to communism, moved to traditionalism. Now, again, he's arguing for his kind of bizarre fourth political theory. Uh, and the one consistent thread throughout his life is that he is rabidly, fanatically uh, anti-liberal uh, and deeply attracted to Russia's potential to confront liberalism in whatever form uh, Russian geopolitics takes. And you can see other people like that. I mean, uh, one person that Dugan references in the book uh, is Nick Land, uh, who famously, mm -hmm. again, went from being a kind of Deleuzean Guattarian critic uh, of liberalism from the left. Uh, now he's circled around what's sometimes called the dark enlightenment uh, critique, uh, endorsing various kinds of race science and pseudoscience and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so people like Land and Dugan are kind of warning to people on the left that you can sometimes take your anti-liberalism or illiberalism far enough uh, that you can wind up in some very dark places that no leftist should be. Yeah, I mean, the Dick Land example is interesting. We could do a whole episode just about that because... Absolutely, yeah. Um, 
you know, because he's somebody who like, look, I mean, I recently reread uh, a book that I love very much, Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher. And, you know, there are proving references to land in that book because they, they, you know, they'd hang out, you know, back then, right? You know, the, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and so I, I think there is probably something to be done, like kind of tracing uh, how land uh, ended up in, uh, in the weird, uh, in the weird places that, that he ended up. Um, but I, I guess, you know, so I, I guess one reason I should say, if anybody wants to, wants to call in, go ahead and get to the, the queue and we'll take a couple of calls here before we go. We'll probably do that pretty soon. But, um, but I guess one reason that this is interesting, like I think, you know, so and one reason this is topical, right? So given current events, uh, you know, there's a lot of argument that happens, you know, that's happened happening right, right, right now about exactly what like Vladimir Putin's uh, package of motivations is for, you know, this sort of uh, insane escalation of, of the conflict, you know, invading the entire country. Uh, and, um, and there are, you know, there are different, you know, views about that and, you know, how much of it is the sort of ideological stuff that might, you know, you know, might mirror kind of, uh, the sort of the sort of territory that you know that Dugan's playing in, you know, Putin wrote this this uh, article in you know 2021, uh, you know, where he he goes, you know, he dips into nationalist mythology, and if you read it, it's like a little ambivalent about whether, you know, like he sort of nods a little bit to it's okay if Ukraine is its own separate nation under certain circumstances, or whatever, but like goes into this like you know weird, creepy kind of nationalistic one people mythology. But I think there's also a reasonable view that um, that there's sort of more like banal geopolitical things that are mostly motivated in this, and and that like the kind of um, you know the kind of like deep nationalist um, rhetoric is 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 just kind of like bullshit to get people excited about it. Um, but but I guess I guess I think you know wherever you come down on that, and I mean if you do have thoughts, I'd like to hear them. But um, I mean I even though I tend towards the second view, I still think like one reason it's, it's interesting to look at this is whether or not there's a sort of causal connection really, you know, between the sort of great power politics of stuff that Russia does and, you know, and, and what people like do think. think. Uh, I guess, I guess based on what little I know and what I've heard you talk about him and all that stuff, my, my suspicion is that, you know, it's still the fact that just thinking about how to put this, the fact that like in a position of a power that's like where Russia is now, where it's sort of lashing out to try to reassert itself, that like somebody like this, like does get to be a little bit of a court intellectual, you know, uh, is, uh, I mean, is, is maybe at least disturbing writing on the wall because like, forget Russia. I mean, this maybe is just what like, you know, reactionary thought everywhere increasingly looks like in the future. No, absolutely. And there's no role that, and there's no doubt that Dugan himself has tried to play that role. Uh, how successful he is in actually courting the attention of somebody like Vladimir Putin, I don't know. Uh, and I don't imagine we'll know for many decades, right? But, you know, in 2007, he would say things like, Putin is absolute, he is indispensable, uh, you know. And um, he does tend to endorse 
this kind of revanchist vision uh, of Russian history that Putin himself has espoused at various points, uh, which is that the West uh, compromised itself uh, by mm-hmm. crossing certain lines with Russia, uh, that the dissolution of the Soviet Union uh, into its separate states was a disaster both for Russia and geopolitically because it allowed the ascendancy of a kind of neoliberal or neoconservative hegemony. Um, there's this argument that Russia is entitled uh, to reassert itself in the way that you're talking about because of its indispensable role, uh, both theologically and as a kind of counterweight to liberalism. Uh, and you know, Putin has invoked this kind of rhetoric at points. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's also interesting, and I think this is important philosophically, uh, is Terry Eagleton wrote a very good book uh, in the 1990s called The Illusions of Postmodernism, uh, and, or as a postmodernity. Illusions of Postmodernity, Illusions of Postmodernism, uh, where he pointed out that the left, uh, was, which was currently racing towards these relativistic, anti-universalistic doctrines uh, espoused by various postmodern authors, seemed to have forgotten that these were originally positions that were adopted and used most effectively by conservative thinkers. Right? Uh, this idea that we should be anti-universalistic, that we should accept the particularities of a given culture, all this was used to invoke and defend a kind of traditional hierarchialization. Uh, now, that's not to criticize all leftists uh, who make anti-universalistic arguments, because I think there's a place for that as part of an anti-imperialist project. But Dugan is just an exemplar of somebody who really does turn a lot of these POMO arguments to extraordinarily reactionary causes. Uh, and Putin has as well, right? Uh, I mean, when confronted with arguments about Russian imperialism or, or Russian smashing of LGBTQ rights, he'll say things like, look, you know, who are you to come in and tell us how to do things? Uh, we're an old civilization. We don't buy into your American imperialism. Uh, or, you know, if we're committing imperialism of our own, uh, that's just as a reaction or response uh, to the far worse forms of American imperialism we've seen since the 20th century. Uh, and Russian people tend to love them for that, right? They see them as exposing Western hypocrisy, asserting uh, the articularity of their national existence. Not all Russians, you know. Uh, and Dugan has certainly been a cheerleader for all of that. Right. All right. Let's uh, let's take a caller. We have uh, Chase. All right, Chase, you with us? You see the uh, unmute? Hey, can you guys hear me? Yep. Yeah. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, I have, I guess, two questions that come to mind. The first is, um, it's about Dugan's appropriation of Russian, uh, Russian thought and Russian culture. <clears throat> How much of that is sincere versus a kind of um, silly, silly reading of, uh, of Russian intellectual history? I mean, I think about like Ben Shapiro and his appropriation of the Western canon coming to mind. Um, and obviously, I mean, there are great thinkers, even great reactionary thinkers in Russian history, um, Dostoevsky and stuff like that. But is Dugan, does Dugan actually care about any of that stuff? Or is this just, um, is this as superficial uh, of an appropriation as the American right does in Western I would say no. I mean, there's no doubt that Dugan sees himself as a serious thinker. He's appreciated as a serious thinker in Russia. Uh, and amongst the worldwide right, I should point out, uh, and that there is a kind of intellectual quality to his work uh, that goes beyond what you would see with somebody like Ben Shapiro, right? Uh, in terms of his appropriation of Russian culture, look, I'm enough of an anti-essentialist to say that culture is always subject to contestation. Uh, is there a pronounced reactionary culture within Russia? Absolutely. Uh, has it been there from the beginning? Absolutely. Is he drawing upon those things? 100 uh, percent. But there are also other facets uh, to Russian culture that he tends to sideline or not emphasize. Uh, so, for instance, not too long ago, I wrote a piece about how 
Dostoevsky's uh, kind of reactionary czarism uh, could be confronted by something like Tolstoyan anarchism or Tolstoyan democratic socialism, which had a huge influence on Russian politics in the 19th century. Uh, and by the way, it's something I'd like to see making a comeback. Uh, and these kind of things aren't stuff that he pays that much attention to, uh, because that's not the story about Russia that he wants to tell. Uh, so I think we need to be very careful uh, about accepting the generalizations he makes about Russia and Russian nationalism. Uh, and if you want any kind of proof of that, just look at what's going on right now. Some of the most rogue people in the world uh, are those who are marching against Vladimir Putin and his war uh, and are potentially facing serious jail time uh, as a result, uh, not to mention serious threats to their family and their livelihoods. Yeah. Uh, before we get to the second question, just the, the mention of Dostoevsky made me think uh, if people check out uh, our friend uh, Nathan Robinson uh, just wrote a very good article called uh, Can We Have a Serious Adult Conversation About Russia in Current Affairs? And in that article, he, he goes through a bunch of examples of, of sort of over the top, bizarre kind of um, you know, 2022 equivalents to like people in World War One. You know, renaming sauerkraut Liberty Cabbage. You know, stuff like that. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. that's like so. So like re- restaurants that take poutine off the menu because it sounds like Putin. And uh, I mean, that's uh, insulting uh, to me as a Canadian. That really, really offends me. <laughs> and, and and one of the ones that he mentioned is that there was some university that I think they. I think they were shaped that like people made fun of them and they reversed themselves, but they initially announced that they were uh, they they weren't going to teach this uh, plan course on Dostoevsky. Oh, it's ridiculous. I mean, I, I mean, th- th- this is the thing, right? I mean, sorry, I'm just so offended by that that you know I kind of lost my mind. You know, look, you know, um, Dostoevsky was no doubt a pretty conservative guy near the end of his life. Uh, interestingly enough, he started out uh, as a kind of liberal socialist, uh, if you want to call it that, around the time when he wrote Poor Folk, uh, and then his experiences in prison and his experiences uh, converting to a kind of orthodox uh, view of Russian uh, Christianity and shifted his position. Uh, but he's a great author, uh, and people should read him as much as they possibly can, uh, since it's always difficult getting through those 900-page books. Anyway, sorry. That's <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, Chase, what was your other question? Well, I mean, first off, ditto on the point about Tolstoy's politics. I feel like he's an underrated political thinker and his um, his influence, um, crypto as it is, through um, nonviolent movements in the 20th century is yeah, absolutely. really understated. So I'm glad you made that point. Um, <clears throat> my second question was, um, you guys were talking about liberalism and its incompatibility with or compatibility with socialism. Um, I'm wondering, are you both familiar with C.B. McPherson's uh, theory of possessive individualism? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, C.B. McPherson's position. Uh, I've actually written about it quite a bit uh, in my new book coming out on postmodernity, uh, and I have a few pieces on it in Jacobin. But uh, I actually think that McPherson's is not quite the road approach to take, but definitely on the right road. Yeah, um, and yeah, I forgot he was a Canadian, um, but... <clears throat> The reason I bring him up is I kind of read that book as making the case that a lot of liberal views, and obviously there's liberalism's a big tent, and you have, you know, Rawls, you have Judas Sklar, and a bunch of other thinkers who take very different approaches to liberal politics. But I kind of looked at his approach as making the argument that, like, look, a lot of what we count as, you know, uh, liberal beliefs about liberty and autonomy um, are actually rooted in a certain conception around private property. 
Um, and that this is kind of like the big chick in the armor for liberal belief. And, you know, I, I kind of read him as taking as like a, a bit of a Hegelian critique of all that. Um, and I was wondering if, you know, to the degree that McPherson's right, maybe there are aspects of liberalism, especially in its, you know, more classical varieties that really are incompatible with a socialist politics. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. Uh, and that's in part my own project, my constructive project, I should say. Uh, I think that we are, is a lot to liberalism in the liberal tradition, philosophical liberalism, as Ben would put it. Uh, that's worth saving. Uh, it's protection of individual rights to expression, individual rights to association, uh, rights for, um, you know, uh, freedom of religion, those kind of things. You know, we can get into that. Uh, but there's a lot historically in liberalism that would need to be chucked for it to be compatible with any kind of socialist project. Uh, and I tend to think that most of the stuff that needs to be chucked is what McPherson would call it's kind of possessive individualism uh, and the commitment to a certain kind of property relations that flow from that. Uh, now, saying that, I think that there are a lot of very good philosophical liberals who have given us a lot of ammunition uh, to begin such a project. Uh, one of the first people that I point to is somebody like John Stuart Mill. Right? John Stuart Mill, mm -hmm. identified as a socialist uh, near the end of his life, uh, argued for workplace democracy, argued for a very extensive redistribution of wealth uh, to the working classes of England. Uh, now, he had his flaws, uh, like everyone else did, and we can be very critical of his support for things like colonialism. Um, but, you know, there's all kinds of resources in the liberal tradition that can allow us uh, to begin a product of radicalization, wherein we drop uh, the association with possessive individualism. Can this be carried out intellectually? I think so. Uh, can it be carried out politically? That's a different question. Yeah, yeah. so, so I, I guess I just pile on to that and, and say, you know, certainly, um, and I mean... I mean, I don't know. It's a little tricky because I'm I'm always kind of allergic to the phrase classical liberalism because I feel like people throw that around a lot as if they as if they had some like knew what that meant, right? You know, and it's yeah. like, well, you know, well, well, hold on. Like, what what do you actually mean by that, right? Because like, it clearly never means like, oh, you agree with John Locke about everything because nobody does. Um, like like people who think they do just I don't know haven't haven't read enough maybe like like they don't you know that they uh, that like. Uh, you know, zero zero people who call themselves classical liberals uh, would say, for example, that uh, that religious you know religious liberty shouldn't apply to Catholics, which was Locke's explicit position. You know, so um, well. I mean, to be fair, if you read Adrian Grimuli's latest book, where he argues for a kind of authoritarian integralism, you might be more sympathetic to that. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe Locke had a point after, after all. If you read Denise and uh, Grimuli, yeah, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, but I mean, I mean, I think it's certainly true that like there is a lot of like 18th and you know early 19th century, um, you know, liberal thought that is, of course, incompatible with uh, with with socialism, right? I mean, because because these people were, I mean, these people like their project, right, was sort of provided an intellectual foundation to the capitalist revolution. So, like they, uh, so it, it would be weird. Right, if there weren't things that they believed that were that were deeply incompatible with socialism, uh, but, you know, although it, you know, John Stuart Mill is, is already an interesting kind of transitional fossil, uh, and I think if you kind of go, like, look at sort of the whole like gestalt from like the sort of 18th century people to somebody like John Rawls, like what I've I argue I have argued in fact in the in the book that uh, that Matt edited the uh, the liberalism and socialism book. Uh, my essay in there that um, there's a certain core of it that 
you know, pretty much unless you're Alexander Dugan, right? You know, we'd all kind of <laughs> accept uh, that, uh, you know, that people do, you know, individuals do have rights quite apart from, you know, what their society says they should or shouldn't have that, you know, that whatever, whatever package of rights these are, and of course, you know, that's a big whatever, right? I mean, like there are galaxies of, of political difference that are contained in that, you know, like what, uh, but, but whichever you think they are, crucially, everybody has the same ones, right? You know, you don't have different rights because of, you know, the, the caste you were born into, or, you know, like it's, it's, you know, there isn't like a natural ordering of human beings about, you know, which rights they should have or anything like that. And I think actually like the sort of normative core of, um, of Marxism, like, like, or, you know, whatever, like I'll, I'll just say the normative core, like of, of Marx's normative impulses is probably, and I mean, this isn't super original to me. There are lots of people who say things roughly along these lines, you know, pretty much it's that core of enlightenment liberalism plus uh, a Republican conception of freedom, right? That the, so, uh, so that you have, you know, freedom is non-domination, you know, which is what all these ancient thinkers, you know, thought it was. Uh, but unlike those ancient thinkers who thought that for some people to be free, some people had to be slaves, you know, it's, it's universalistic. Um, and, and that seems, you know, that seems entirely correct and good to me. I, I also think there's a kind of constitutional liberalism that Matt was kind of alluding to about, you know, free speech and freedom of association, all that stuff. That's, that's definitely, uh, I think, I think not only can be, but has to be part of any kind of worthwhile socialist project. And, um, and I guess really to get to the core of your question about property, like, I'm very like I I mean I kind of get how that argument goes but I also think it concedes things that shouldn't be conceded like um I I think that personal autonomy you know is important I'm very convinced by like the you know Judas Jarvis Thompson stuff about abortion rights for example Yeah uh but I I think that precisely the thing that's weird about you know some like libertarian or quote unquote classical liberal uh, you know, conceptions of this stuff is that they're conflating that kind of personal autonomy with, um, you know, with like extensive property rights in ways that don't really make sense and really don't really capture what's important about personal autonomy. Like, I, I don't remember who I'm quoting here, uh, but there's this classic review of, uh, like early review of uh, Robert Nozick's book, Anarchy, State, and Utopia. Uh, George Kateb, maybe anyway, where the uh, reviewer, you know, says, I find it impossible to believe that I have nerve endings and every dollar in my bank account. And <laughs> that's a great line. <laughs> you know, that just kind of captures it for me. It's like, yeah, I mean, you, you don't like, yeah, I mean, your, your, your autonomy and your person and, you know, and, and, and get into, you know, having a certain, certain sort of sphere of like what's just yours, whatever actually is, you know, crucially important. But, like the idea that that uh, you know the idea that there's any particular distribution of wealth that should fall out of that, or that there's there's any um, you know that like there are certain property relations whatever that that just you know I mean I think that's kind of like there's a lot of liberal and libertarian rhetoric that fuses those things together, but I I think we should you know I I think we should keep them unfused. Yeah, just to kind of riff on that Nozick point. Uh, I'd recommend reading Ted Honderick's book, Conservatism, uh, Burke, Nozick, Bush, Blair, uh, question mark on the end, uh, where he talks also about some of the problems with this Nozickian view. 
because I'll just paraphrase briefly. Uh, like Ben, I think that most leftists should be attracted to the idea that people own their own body uh, in a certain sense, uh, or at least that they're entitled to a high degree of bodily autonomy. And I think the Judas Jarvis uh, Thompson essay is an exemplar of that. You know, it's very hard to argue with something like abortion rights uh, if you don't have at least a certain commitment uh, to bodily autonomy. Uh, and as a mm-hmm. feminist, I definitely want to do that, right? Uh, now, saying that, I find very mysterious this idea that somehow by mixing my labor with <laughs> Uh, it becomes my property in this kind of locking format. And I find it even more uh, mysterious that people would claim that, well, even though mixing labor with matter makes something your property, nonetheless, the capitalist class can appropriate that uh, if they you, you create a contract uh, prior uh, to things, which says that this isn't actually your property, even though you mix your labor with it, it's mine because I'm paying you a wage. Uh, and I think this is an insolvable problem uh, for most libertarians. Uh, and it's worth noting, as Hondrick points out, that Nozick actually makes fun of the labor theory of value, uh, or sorry, the labor theory of entitlement and lock, uh, then nevertheless says, well, we need something like this uh, for my theory, <laughs> so I'm still going to buy into it to a certain extent. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I, I should add to, I think that that kind of um, lock-in labor theory of entitlement, um, I, I, mean, I, I mean, I think I agree with both points you're making, which are one that taken seriously, I think that actually gets you to a kind of socialist view. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but also, it's not my kind of socialist view, you know, that, uh, that I, don't, I don't actually believe in a labor theory of entitlement or, you know, not exactly, right? I, I think that, uh, uh, and by the way, um, just for fun, right? I mean, neither did Marx, right? Read the, read the first chapter of the critique of the Gotha program where he's, he's criticizing Lasallians for saying that workers should get the full products of, uh, of their labor. And he's, he's bringing up all of these obvious, you know, problems with that, um, that, you know, what about people who can't work? You know, what about the fact that some people are just naturally able to work more than others, you know, et cetera. Uh, and in some ways, these are the kinds of, um, well, actually in, I'm going to be in Toronto late next month and, uh, in one or both of the two academic talks. So they're, they're, they'll, probably get more into this but i think that the uh i think that some of what mark says about that is actually kind of like weirdly proto ralsian uh but i i guess um i mean i think that there's something like there's like maybe some kind of salvageable core to a labor theory of entitlement but that core is like more along the lines of like if you just uh you know, it's perfectly fine for different people to have different amounts of stuff based on complete, you know, if it's based on completely free decisions about like which work labor trade, you know, which uh, work leisure trade-offs they want to make uh, that, you know, that's, that's fine. Right. But like the idea that you deserve to have more than somebody else because you're stronger or smarter or anything like that. I mean, that, that really, that does not, has never sat right with me. No, absolutely. And I mean, we all buy into certain elements of the workmanship as AL, as it's sometimes called. You know, if I sit there and I make a sandwich for lunch uh, and you come along and you take it, uh, there's going to be a part of me that's going to get angry and say, hey, look, that's mine. You know, I made it. Uh, It's understandable, right? Uh, I just don't think there's any way that you can mobilize workmanship or the labor theory of entitlement uh, to justify the vast inequities uh, in property that we see today. Uh, And for that matter, I also don't think that anyone else buys into that either. Uh, It's worth noting, again, that the most important classical liberal, let's just call it that, uh, theorist of the 21st century, F.A. Hayek, also didn't buy into this and said, 
there's really no defensible way of arguing for this position, so we just have to check it. Right? Yeah, uh, Chase, it sounded like you were starting to say something. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, no, those are, I basically, I think I agree to, um, to a great extent with pretty much all your points. Um, yeah, I, I just want to, I guess I wanted to just wrap up if other people wanted to talk here. Um, be like, I'm going to uh, be in your class here, Ben, on uh, uh, the arguments of capital volume. Oh, good. One. Cool. Yep. I, wasn't, I wasn't sure if you had told the people uh, in Colin <laughs> yet about that, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to rep for that. <laughs> and, uh, Sure, sure. So, uh, yeah, in April and May at the School for Social and Cultural Change, I'm going to be teaching a class called Analyzing Marx's Arguments, Capital Volume 1. And uh, basically the idea of the class, it's uh, so it's going to be eight weeks in April and May uh, doing Zoom meetings on Sunday afternoons, uh, Sunday afternoons EST. So if you're in most time zones, unless you're in South Korea or something that should work. Um, And yeah, the idea of the class is just roughly that um, I wanted to make it a little bit different from the way that a lot of reading groups or classes about about capital work, because the emphasis is on, you know, I, I think it's like really easy to get sucked into a way of approaching that book where you're, trying so hard to just understand it you know that you never kind of pause to think about okay what are the connections supposed to be between the ideas if i buy this but i don't buy that you know where does that leave me and so the um the emphasis is going to be very strongly on what are the um what are the ways in which uh like on reconstructing the arguments and and sort of saying okay here's how you could read the argument that he's making here and if you don't buy this premise then you know here's like something that's in the neighborhood that you might still you know you might still be able to accept and you know stuff like that so that's the that's that's what i'm hoping for at least to get out of that class yeah it looks like a lot of fun um and it would take us too far afield but sometime i'd like to hear why dialetheism is wrong but uh (laughs) But uh, yeah, I'll let I'll let other people uh, get to talk. And thanks for taking my call, guys. All right, thanks, man. Yeah, cheers. Be soon. Um, well, I, I can do a real short answer to that, and then a uh, and then she did answer to that. The uh, uh, you know the real short answer is that um, if uh, this this works better visually, but uh, it's uh, but if I you know if I like put a coin do that thing where I put a coin in one of my hands and you can't see which one it is, but you know that it's in one of my hands. And then I open up, uh, I open up one palm and show you that it's not there. Uh, well, if you accept that this is proof positive, that it's in the other hand, that you can see what's wrong with dialetheism because that inference wouldn't work if contradictions could be true. Uh, that, uh, you know, from either a or B, not a, therefore B because Hey, if a could be both true and false, then, uh, then that doesn't follow anymore. Um, so that's the uh, that's the that's the very short answer uh, for a much 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 longer version of that answer. I actually have a book that just came out like a week ago uh, called Logic Without Gaps or Gluts from uh, from Springer, which uh, it's you know it's academic publishing. It's not cheap, but uh, you know get your library to get it if you want to read it <laughs> or. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'll pair it. I'll pair it with a reading from from Priest, and I'll try to figure out where I stand. <laughs> fair enough. Um, yeah. So, 
<laughs> there, you, there you go. Uh, that's uh, th- those are my uh, those are my two attempts at uh, at showing why dialethism is false. The uh, the coin argument and read my book, but um, <laughs> it's nothing I, like the read my book argument, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 you know, look, you know, premise one, my my book explains all this correctly. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, I, I do actually think, though, it's possible. I haven't looked this up. You know, I know there have been like, you know, whatever, getting close to 2,000 episodes over the years. And so I, I could be wrong about this, but I think it's possible that I'm the first person in history to have um, have a book about philosophy of logic that was published the same week they went on the Joe Rogan show. Probably, yeah. I don't imagine there would be anybody who would be competing with you for that title. But there you go. That's this extremely important title. That, uh, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. All right. Well, hey. Um, all right. Let's get. Uh, actually, I think we're getting to be about ten, so maybe we should actually cut it off right there. But uh, Matt, you have any uh, you have any final thoughts or uh, or anything you want to plug before we go? Sure. Well, I, I just wanted to wrap up by saying I think what Dugan represents for us uh, is a kind of warning uh, to the political left. Uh, if you read his work, what you can realize is that he does draw fairly liberally from a variety of radical left uh, and very far right thinkers. Uh, but it's always to the same purpose, uh, to endorse a raggedly anti-liberal, anti-enlightenment project uh, that's going to uphold various kinds of nationalist prejudice uh, and strict hierarchialization uh, within his mm-hmm. own society and externally. Uh, and we should look at that as a kind of sign uh, that maybe just being consistently anti-liberal on everything isn't the way uh, for the left to go. I think that if we're going to be anti-liberal, which we should be, uh, we need to be intelligently anti-liberal, appropriate the elements of the liberal tradition that are worth mm-hmm. saving, chucking the rest uh, in the name of socialist equality uh, and doing that in an analytically and politically smart uh, and strategic way. Uh, and you can see people like Nick Land, uh, who unfortunately sometimes don't do this, right? You know, they take their liberalism so far uh, that if it looks like reaction, uh, nationalism, and all kinds of conservatism are a better opponent or a more viable opponent of liberalism, that's the horse they're going to hitch their cart to. Uh, so don't do that. Be better than that, everybody. Yeah, hard to argue with that. Uh, well, uh, people can... Uh... Check out Matt at the uh, podcast that he co-hosts, which is called Plastic Pills. Uh, They can read him in a bunch of places, but, you know, the the best uh, one, of course, is Jacobin. And um, and what's... Oh, I should do a pitch for that, actually, briefly. Uh, For those of you who are interested in my own critique of this kind of bullshitty, possessive individualist position, I have a new piece that will be coming out pretty soon in Jacobin. it's a long critique of Ludwig von Mises, who I'm sure some of you know about. Uh, I'm hoping that'll come out in the next couple of months. Uh, but nice. anyway, yeah, you'll you'll get to see a lot of my <laughs> most up to date thoughts on that there, along with some pretty nasty takedowns, if I do say myself. Outstanding. All right. Well, I look forward to that. Uh, thank you, Matt. Uh, thank you, everybody uh, who's listening. We'll try to uh, to release this eh, probably the re- recording by the end of the day. Um, left is best. Left is best.